this is the inspired Word of God. We recognize that God has a hand in what is here, but we also recognize it's, sort of, it's a God action and a human action coming together. And so there's humanity in the Scriptures. And what I mean by that is I don't believe that the Bible was verbally dictated word by word by God Himself. Like when Peter sits down or David sits down or Paul sits down or Luke or John or any other authors of the Scriptures, I don't think they have like a blank sheet of paper and a pen in hand and then God speaks word for word exactly what they ought to write. There's still a human quality to the Scriptures that allows Paul to write as Paul. He uses his words and his language and his experience and his worldview and his perspective, and that's how he writes. That's why if you're reading uh, the original Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, uh, Paul writes different than John does, and the reason why is because God still allows humanity to come through in regards to the Scriptures. And so it doesn't disturb me if Paul had the assumptions that you would normally have in the first century. For example, if Paul thought that the whole universe revolved around the earth, which is what you thought in the first century, that doesn't trip me up. Like, I don't think to myself, how could he think that and be an author of Scripture where we know that, no, no, like the earth even revolves around the sun. I mean, we get that now because of scientific discovery, but it doesn't throw me out. If Paul believed that the earth was flat, I'm all right with that if his cosmology might not be our cosmology because he's writing as a first century Jew. From his time, his perspective, his worldview, and nothing in the Bible is to make us think that he writes as an omniscient being. Now, the difficulty in that is this. It's difficult at times to read the Scriptures and try to figure out what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Meaning, is the Bible just reflecting the age and time it was being written in, meaning it's just being descriptive, or is it telling us this is the way things are supposed to be, not only now but forever, and in that it is prescriptive. And so you might read sometimes and think it's being prescriptive when in actuality it was just being descriptive telling us how things are. And nowhere is this more helpful to me than thinking through issues of women's rights. Because I have to confess, when I read the Bible, there are certain stories and certain sections that I get to and I think, that seems whack. I mean, does anyone else have that experience where they read about like, you can admit it, we're going to be safe. Like, it's still the Word of God, but you have stories you kind of go... That seems a little crazy to me, especially at times for me when I read in regards to women's roles and how they were treated and some of the things that go down in regards to that. And so what we do know is in the first century culture, and not just in Jewish culture, but almost in all cultures in the first century, it's patriarchal in nature, meaning that it's a system of society or government completely controlled by men. It's a day and age when women didn't have a high status in regards to the patriarchal society that they lived in. Now, that troubles me. Like, And I don't think that that's prescriptive from the Bible. I think it's being descriptive, like this is the way things are. We live in a patriarchal culture. Did you know back in the first century there was actually a rabbinic prayer in which men had a prayer that they would say every day, they thank God, and here's what it said, Blessed art thou, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was a Jewish prayer that they would offer in the first century. And I think the prayer wasn't intended necessarily to be a bashing of Gentiles or slaves or women. It was a sincere thanksgiving that they weren't one because Gentiles and slaves and women were not allowed to really fully participate in the community of faith like the men were. They had restrictions. For example, even in just the temple, the construction of the temple, they had different courts that made up the temple. But you can see a map here. You probably need magnifying glasses on the back row. But if you were a Gentile, you see the number 12 there at the very bottom? 
That was the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, that's as close as you could come to really the temple. Like that, that was as far as you could get. You weren't allowed to move past that point. I don't know if you see the number nine there in the center towards the bottom. That was the court of women. So if you were a woman, you were allowed in the temple, but you had to stay in that court. You couldn't go any further. So you could see some of the restrictions and limitations going all the way back to the number one spot there. That's the Holy of Holies, and only the chief priest could go in there, and only that once a year. That was all that was ever allowed in the Holy of Holies, once a year, and only one person. And so women's place, it was felt, was in the home. And her role was relegated to that domestic sphere, not in the public sphere, not in the political sphere, and it would seem unseemly for a woman to even serve as a witness in court. So oftentimes, the testimony of women were not allowed in court. Like if she were to see something, her testimony would not be valid because it would be unseemly for her to be a witness in court. What is amazing to me is, you know, when we think about the, like in 2014, you're like, man, that's just kind of crazy. That's just kind of whack to think about how that must have felt like or been like. But historically, even in the United States, like the women's suffrage movement is really a fairly recent historical thing in our own nation. But one of the things then that happens in the midst of this first century patriarchal society, one of the amazing and profound aspects of Christianity is when Jesus shows up, he values Gentiles. And he values slaves. And he will value women and even count them among his disciples, which was absolutely unheard of in the first century. And even for the Apostle Paul, even though I think he's a first century Jew and a male writing from that perspective, when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's talking about marriage and husbands and wives. And he'll say to the wives, he'll start, they'll say, wives, your body is not your own, it belongs to your husband. Now that thought right there in the first century would have been a, well, of course, that's how it works in this patriarchal society. My wife's body belongs to me. But what he says next is absolutely profound for the first century. He says to the men, he says, and your body is not your own, it belongs to your wife. Now, that's a profound, like, and sorry that this is what you get. <laughs> but, I mean, in the first century, this is my wife, by the way. You're like, that's strange. That's my, uh, that's a profound thing. Like what Paul will write in the church to Galatians, and he'll say in Galatians 3.28, he'll say, listen, there's neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Like that's a, wow, that is, a, that is an interruption of this patriarchal thought in which we live in. So we've been talking about stories now for quite some time, but if you were a woman in the first century, your story wasn't really your own. You hoped that your story would somehow get attached to somebody else's, meaning you didn't grow up as a little girl thinking, someday I'm going to be this for an occupation and I'm going to change the world. You dreamt the only dream that was available to you, and that is that someday you hope to be a wife and then a mother. That was your dream. You hoped that your husband would be a good man, a kind man, a man with the resources who could take care of you, and if he wasn't ugly, that would be a bonus. But you didn't even have the capacity to choose him freely. Your dad did that. Because you were economically considered your dad's property, and you would one day economically be transferred to the possession and property of your husband. So your role as wife ensured then that you would be taken care of because you've got a husband you would be provided for. Now, your father could do that for a period of time, but if he passed and you were not married and didn't have a husband, listen, there was no social program that kicked in to make sure you had food and to take care of you then in the absence of a husband. You were subject to the possibility of being destitute. You didn't just go, well, I'll go back to college and I'll get a degree and I'll try to acquire a marketable skill and I'll enter the workforce because the workforce was not a place for a woman. 
You were dependent on your husband for your care and provision, and that's why it was very important to become a wife. But then once you become a wife, your hope was to have a son, and as many as you could. Now, if you have a daughter along the way, that's fine, but you really needed at least a son, if not many sons. Because not only because motherhood was highly esteemed, but because your future and your economic stability in the future was dependent on your sons. There was a good chance that your husband was older than you. Chances are better than half that he probably die before you do. And when that happens, it will be your sons that will be your link to the future. Your husband is your tie to the past. Your sons are the tie to the future. And if you were a woman, your story was very intertwined with the story of others, the story of your husband, and the story of your son. Now listen, I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I don't think this is prescriptive. I think this is descriptive. This is just how it was in the first century in the time and place that Jesus walked, which is why the story then for us this morning is amazing. It's going to be in Luke chapter 7. That's where I'm going to be. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Here's the background. Jesus is teaching with his disciples, and they're traveling, and he's preaching, and he's healing people, and he's just had an amazing encounter with a centurion. Now, you remember last week we talked about Cornelius the centurion? This is another centurion. He's got a servant who he really loves who's sick and about to die. And he's heard stories about this Jesus who's able to heal people. So he gets some of the uh, elders of the Jews to actually go to Jesus and ask if Jesus would come back to the house and heal his servant. And so what happens is Jesus agrees, and on his way back, the centurion sends out another servant and says to the servant, to say to Jesus, tell him, listen, I don't even deserve to have you come into my house. If you'll just say the word, I know it will happen. Because I'm a man who's under authority, and I'm a man who has those who are, uh, who are under my authority beneath me. And when I say go, they go. When they come, they come. I mean, that's how it works. And so I trust if Jesus just say the word, it will happen. And when Jesus hears his, the, what the centurion says, it says in, in Luke 7, verse 9 and 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. In the men, then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found that the servant was well. You see, Jesus values the Gentiles, unlike that rabbinic prayer. But here's the next scene. He shows the value of women. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. Now, I don't know, have you ever seen on the news like Middle Eastern funeral processions? Have you ever seen what those look like? They got the dead body on, it's called a beer, it's kind of like a mat, and their dead body's on top, and they're carrying them around, and everyone comes out, the whole community comes out, and there's mourning, and there's wailing, and they're cheering, and they're chanting, and uh, that's what a, a funeral procession looks like, which, by the way, I really love. Like, when I die, would somebody kind of take note that I would like to have a cool funeral procession down Erskine Boulevard? Like, instead of meeting in here, we're all going to gather, hey, Sam's dead. I mean, that's where we're going to come back, back and forth. <laughs> Bagpipes. I want bagpipes in the procession too. That's what. So that's what's happening. So Jesus is going into the town, and there's a funeral procession going out of the town. They're going out of the town because they're all concerned about ritual cleanliness, and so you bury the dead kind of outside of the town limits, so to speak. And so that's what's happening. Everybody's mourning. You see the bodies laying on top. They're carrying them out. And just as Jesus is heading in, he encounters this whole thing. And the Bible tells us in verse 12 the backstory. The man that they're carrying is the only son of his mother. You get that? The only son she has is now dead. 
Now, this in itself is devastating news. Remember the culture that she lives in, though. It's bad enough to lose a son. Can you imagine the trauma and pain that I mean, losing a child in itself? But the text tells us this next note. It says, and she was a widow. See, that's not just some random side note. What the Bible is telling us is, is that this woman has just lost everything. This isn't just a story of grief and tragedy. This is a story of complete devastation. This poor woman has lost her husband. She's a widow and her link to the past, and she's now just lost her only son, which is the link to her future. The entirety of her life as both mother and wife, which were the only options available to her, are now over and gone. Her story seems to have come to a tragic end, and this is probably why there was such a large crowd from the town with her, because communally they recognized the gravity of the situation. This is beyond tragic. In short, she's lost everything. Now, there's another story in the Old Testament that's kind of analogous, analogous to this. It's the story of Ruth, I don't, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Her mother-in-law is Naomi, and Naomi's a widow, and then she loses her two sons, Ruth's husband. And in it, she's so devastated, she's so overwhelmed. What happens is Naomi says, I don't even want you to call me Naomi anymore. Like, call me Mara, which means bitterness. She's so overwhelmed in the grief because she has lost everything. And maybe you've been there. I don't know if you've ever hit rock bottom so hard that it feels, and maybe even in reality is, the feeling that you've, you've lost everything. You've lost your job. You've lost your wife. You've lost your kids. You've lost your reputation. Maybe the addiction has won again, or you've sunk so low that there's no light at the end of this tunnel. It's all dark. There's no light at all. That place where when you get there, death feels like a better option than living in this life. And I'm not talking about just a little hard luck here or a little down season. I'm talking about complete devastation. Or maybe your story has commonalities of this widow's story that it's death itself that has moved you to this place. Maybe you've lost your spouse or somebody dear to you or a child. Here's what happens next in verse 13, though. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. See, if you're at rock bottom, if you've lost everything, I I want you to see what happens next. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. When Jesus sees this woman, Something happens inside his heart so full of compassion for this woman's situation. It says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. He's moved with great compassion. And I want you to know if you're at rock bottom in the midst of your devastation, Jesus is moved by your circumstances. When it feels like there's not a light at the end of this tunnel and you are in complete overwhelming pain, I want you to know that Jesus' heart is responsive, and it moves. I know at the moment it probably doesn't feel like it to you. You can't see, but I want you to know that his heart goes out to you. And people often talk about, well, why does Jesus do miracles? Well, he's got to prove he's the Son of God, and he needs to, you know, show his divine power. But you don't see any of that in the story, do you? It doesn't look like Jesus is trying to prove anything. What it looks like is Jesus sees this poor woman who's in complete devastation, and he's just moved to do something. It just had a pure compassion of his heart. It just wells up. It has got to do something. But now what happens next could possibly be, in my mind, one of the most insensitive moments in the ministry of Jesus. So picture this. You've, you've got a woman who's lost everything, and Jesus walks right up to her and says, don't cry. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Really? You just told this 
widow and now this woman who's lost her only son. Don't cry. Like, if there's ever a time to cry, this is the time to cry. I want you to picture being at a visitation, like going to a funeral home and a visitation. you got the mother there at a casket. She's trying to bury her son. And you're standing there with her talking, and some bozo walks up, and in the midst of her tears says, well, don't cry. Like, could you imagine? Like, you'd be like, I'm punching this guy right now. That's what. Seriously? Don't cry? And then what happens next in verse 14? Jesus goes up, and he actually touches the, it's called the beer, B-I-E-R, not beer, like beer, it's a coffin, that's what the man is lying on, which in itself is totally socially inappropriate. It stops the entire procession, like the whole town is stopped in their tracks, and then Jesus will actually say out loud, young man, I say to you, get up. Now, if I'm Uncle Hezekiah, I might have held back at the don't cry part, but to stop this thing and touch the coffin and then say, get up. That, ooh, it's, right, you are, it, you're, it's time to go at it. You and Jesus are about to, ooh, until verse 15 happens. The dead man sat up and began to talk, which these are always those moments in my mind where I go, I wonder what he said. Like, what's the first thing that you say when, like, you get up and, hey, everybody, why am I in a coffin? Like, what's, like, what comes out of his mouth? Like, I didn't see that bus coming. Like, I don't know what he, what he says. Like, I would probably be like, I'm hungry. Like, that's what come out of my mouth. But then my favorite line comes next. Favorite line in the entire story. Then Jesus gave him back to his mother. See, I love that. See, this woman's devastated. Then Jesus gave him back to his mother. Could you imagine the overwhelming emotions of the mother? I mean, she's been all over the map the past couple of days. I mean, she's lost everything. And now in this moment, Jesus hands back to this mother her son. And I just, in my mind, I just picture her just sobbing, like just, just sobbing, just holding her, her son and just saying over and over again, my son, my son, my son is back, my son is alive. And I know right now in this room there is a mother who feels like you've lost your son to drugs or maybe to prison or to some unresolved conflict or maybe even a dysfunctional relationship that he even chose. And every night you pray for your son. And you feel deep down, the pain and sorrow of longing to have your son back. Or maybe right now there's a father in the room, and you feel the depth of emotion as watching your, your little girl ro- turn away from God, and every night you pray and you ask God to rescue her and to find her. Or maybe you're a wife who feels like you have lost your husband to either a career or an addiction or maybe just apathy. And through tears, you pray every night, asking Jesus to give him back. And I want you to know that we follow a Savior who is able to stop a procession of pain and grief, and in a moment with a touch, hand back to us the things that were dead, the things that we've been praying about for years. And I want you to to be encouraged to have faith this morning, because sometimes you grow weary, and sometimes you grow tired. And and I'm telling you, Dad, don't, don't go tired yet. In a moment, Jesus can stop the procession of grief and pain. And I know sometimes it's just discouraging. You're wondering, when will Jesus show up and hand me back the son that I've lost to this or that? I want to, don't be discouraged. Just don't, don't give up. That we have a Savior who at any moment can, with a touch, hand back to you the things that are dead. And this is our story about Jesus who brings back to life those things that were dead. And as we've told stories this past four weeks, I want to encourage you to think through, how can you be a connector of story? 
as we've gone through week after week, like, who's the most unlikely person to t- step foot in church? Like, you're like, they would never have a relationship with God. You just kind of, you think, like, think, how can I let my story connect to their story to Jesus' story? How do you be a connector in that? Or maybe the guy who you work with that nobody likes, nobody wants to be around. He's like the Cornelius. Nobody, nobody wants him in the club. But you're going to have a special place in your heart to connect that story and Jesus' story and to watch it merge. Or who right now around you might be in a place of such devastation, like truly devastated, that you know that story needs to come in touch with Jesus' story, that you could be the connector of that. I want you to just pray and to have that mindset moving into this week. How do I connect that and how can I be that? But if this is where you're at, like, oh, I need Jesus to touch this person in my life and to give back what is dead, then he can do that. So if you wouldn't mind, let's, let's just bow our heads. Let's just pray. Father, we come to you and we're grateful that you are God who raises the dead. We're going to celebrate that in a very powerful way next week, but we need to be reminded going into this next week that you are a God who when we feel discouraged or when we feel overwhelmed or when we feel tired, that we need you to speak faith back into our hearts to know that, oh, no, you are more than more than powerful enough to give us back those things that we love and those things that seem dead, to bring it back to life. We pray this for your glory's sake and your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Let's sing together.